Today is the very first week of a brand new series called Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega. I'm telling you what, the next three weeks are going to be so much fun at Emmaus Road. You do not want to miss them. Uh, I am so excited about this, uh, this series because as all of you know, I think Alpha means beginning, Omega means end, right? We're studying the endless connections between the beginning and the end, between Genesis and Revelation. Now, here's what happens most of the time. Uh, as we, 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 We're going to spend these three weeks exploring all of these kinds of connections. But what happens a lot of time is we come to Genesis and we say, oh, that is such a sweet little poem about creation. And oh, it mean, you know, it's very, very touching. It's very heartwarming. But a lot of times we say that happened back there. There's no reason for us to talk about it. There's no reason for us to begin to try to understand it because it's already over. And here we are today, right? And so a lot of times we just kind of look at Genesis and we say, oh, that happened. God is the creator, and then we move on. Uh, a lot of times, though, when we, come, when we look at the other side, the end, the Revelation, where Revelation is a book filled with all sorts of imagery that can be confusing, that can be overwhelming. And so when we come to Revelation, we often say, oh, all I need to know is that God wins in the end. And so we say, Genesis is this great thing, but we're already past that. And Revelation is this thing that's too hard to get a handle on. All I need to know is who wins in the end. And so we sort of ignore the beginning and the end. And what I want to do over the next three weeks is I want to begin to draw connections between the beginning and the end. Because I believe, and I have a strong conviction, that how we understand the beginning and how we understand the end has everything to do with how we live today. It's not sort of these things that we can just say, oh, we're over that, and oh, we know we're going to win there. But there's, there's all kinds of rich meaning and depth in the creation story, and there's all kinds of things that we can begin to understand from Revelation. So we're going to spend the next three weeks drawing connections between the two. All right? Does that sound good? You guys excited? I am excited. All right? So today I want to talk to you about trees. I have these trees strategically placed, and both of them were moved during worship. So I now understand that they were in your way, and that's all right. I like, I like the fact that you all felt free to move the obstruction to worship. Now, I might just segue right into another sermon that if we could regularly, every time we come to church, move whatever is obstructing our worship. Okay? That's good. That's good, all right? So I may just put this series on hold and do that, but I think I'll go forward, all right? So we're going to talk about trees today, because there are some trees in Scripture, and I think the trees have a lot to teach us about our life today. So we're going to be in, guess what, Genesis and Revelation. So uh, if you have a hard time finding those, it's the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible, all right? So let's, uh, let's read together from Genesis first, uh, where we are introduced to the trees, and... Um, We'll, we'll believe that God has a great word for all of you today. Okay, so Genesis, I want to read chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And then I'm going to pick up in chapter 3, the first seven verses. So we're in Genesis 2, 8 through 10, and then Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Follow along with me as I read it together. All right. It says this, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
And the Lord God made all kinds of trees uh, to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the, to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there we are, we're introduced to two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let's skip down to chapter 3 and read the first seven verses. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Now we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the woman, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked so they f- sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We're introduced to the tree, and then we realize and we are told the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for our purposes today, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? So you all over here, you're evil. You're on the knowledge of tree and good and evil side, okay? And for our purposes this morning, this is the tree of life. Yeah, okay, the tree of life, okay? So the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge uh, and the tree of life. Now this tree is right in the middle of the garden, and it's right also in the middle of all the action in Genesis. And what God does is he, God gives Adam and Eve this beautiful garden with just one instruction, just one limitation. And the limitation, the instruction is, do not eat from this tree, because if you do, you will surely die. And they ate it. Both of them. And I know this is a perfect time for a corny little joke about Adam and Eve and how, you know, Eve ate first, so the women always lead us to evil, right? I've heard that one. And then, well, the guys are like, yeah, but he was right there, and he should have done a little better job. So this is not a time to place blame on husband or wife. They both ate it, right? They both ate it, and sin entered the world. I want to talk to you a little bit today about the nature of this tree. And and by understanding this tree, we can really begin to understand the nature of sin itself. Because perhaps more than just a sin of disobedience that Adam and Eve had, where God told them not to eat it and they ate it anyway, which is certainly a sin of disobedience, I think that perhaps even more than that, that was a sin of a desire to become autonomous from the Creator or more more properly, our Creator. It's this idea of, I am the created being and I am under the lordship of a creator who has given me instruction, has given me limitation, has given me mission, go and take care of this garden. He's given me all of these great things only with one limitation and perhaps more than just a sin of disobedience was a sin of trying to become autonomous from the creator, to separate ourselves from under the lordship of the creator and be our own lord. Does that make sense? So this sin is much greater and much more profound than just simply a sin of disobedience. Because to reject the will of God and to reject the one limitation that they were given was to live as though they had no limitation. 
Does that sound familiar in today's culture? That sin is this, this idea, this uh, struggle, this, this effort on our part to come out from under our creator as the created beings and become our own Lord. Become autonomous from the one who has created us. And then to live as though we have no limitation. In our culture, we work way too hard because we believe that our bodies are machines and we can handle it. And so we work too hard because there is no limit to what I can accomplish. And we think that it won't affect us. In our culture, we eat too much. As the portion size get bigger and bigger and bigger. A small, when I was a kid at McDonald's, they don't even make a cup that small. It's like a today's coffee cup, right? I mean, the portion sizes just get bigger and bigger and bigger. As a culture, we eat too much. And we believe that when we eat too much, that because we're without limitation, that it won't affect us. And so we live sort of this wild life, believing that we are limitless. And that's precisely what happens in the garden. A sin of trying to come out from underneath the lordship of the one who has created us and live as though we have no limitation. It's a sin of of trying to be autonomous from our creator. Does that make sense? And so really the, the, the tree can teach us a lot about the nature of sin. I also want to look at the, um, the order and the, the, the sort of process of the sin that happens here. Because take, take a look at this, the sequence of the temptation and then the subsequent sin. The, the serpent who is more crafty than any other of, of the wild animals that God had made comes to Eve and places a seed of doubt. She goes to Eve, the serpent goes to Eve and says, Did God really say? I wonder how many times the evil one, the enemy of your life, the one who is trying to derail you from the victory that is already yours in Christ, is really trying to derail you from that victory simply with a seed of doubt. Did God really say that? Did God really move in your life in that way? I mean, you come to church, you have this great time, you're surrounded by this loving community, the worship songs speak to you, the sermon speaks to you, you're lifted up, and then Monday morning you go to work, and the the evil one says to you, you know, did God really say? Did God really do that? And so the first thing is the seed of doubt. And then what we see is that Eve reaffirms the word of God. Does she not? She said, no, no, let me correct you, serpent. Here's what God really did say. God said that we can have the whole garden except for this one tree. We can't eat from that or we will surely die. And so sometimes in our life, even after that seed of doubt is planted, you and I live victoriously and we reaffirm the word of God. And we say, oh, yes, he did. So the first thing the serpent does is appeal is plant a seed of doubt. His second tactic to move Eve along is to appeal to her pride. No, God didn't really say that because he knew that if you eat like this, if you eat this, then you'll be like him and you'll know good and evil. And there's the pride wanting to raise ourselves up to an equal plane of the creator in our lives. And, and what happens after that is so interesting about the temptation that the, that the enemy leads us through. First, the seed of doubt. 
Eve's uh, reaffirmation or affirmation of the word of God, an appeal to pride, and then what happens all of a sudden in the narrative? Eve looks at the tree and says, man, that fruit looks good. It looks good for food. It's appealing to the eye. And it will give me wisdom that I don't yet have. It will give me a knowledge that I want to attain and make me equal to my creator. As soon as the seed of doubt is planted, and as soon as the enemy appeals to the pride, the sin looks attractive. Isn't that interesting? Don't tell me that some poem at the beginning of the Bible doesn't have anything to do with our lives today. Because how often does the enemy run us through that same process? The seed of doubt, and we stand firm, appeal to our pride, and all of a sudden, that which we know is destructive, that which we know God has said, you've got to stay away from that. Whether it's through the, the, the outlines of his word, whether it's through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit and leading us, you've got to stay away from here. Whatever it is, all of a sudden, that which is so destructive looks so attractive. Isn't that interesting? And what we see in Genesis is we're not given any details about the tree of life except that it was there among other trees and all the trees pretty much looked good. But what we hear in the narrative is that once the serpent comes in with doubt and pride, then that which is destructive becomes that which is most appealing. And isn't that so true that in our lives, that which is ultimately destructive in the short term is very appealing. And it appeals to our flesh. We look at it. We, look, we want to taste it. We have all of these senses that Eve is feeling when she looks at the fruit of the tree. And the same thing for us. That which is ultimately will destroy us. That which will lead us down a path of death oftentimes looks to be the most appealing. And that which is most life-giving oftentimes is the most hidden. Which is why Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed, talks like the kingdom of God being yeast in a bread. It's sort of these things that are hidden yet ever growing. And so I want to encourage you today to be discerning of what God has really spoken to you, to stand firm in the midst of temptation. Because what we can learn from this tree is that this is the the tree that leads us to sin. This is the tree that tries to raise us up above our creator. This is the tree that that tries to make us believe that we are, are, are autonomous, that we can live without our creator, that we can be our own God, that we have no limitations. And what is the result as we read on in the narrative? And we won't take time to read it today. But what what we learn is the result of this sin. Is that Adam and Eve are then isolated from God. That where where they once enjoyed this, this perfect relationship with him. Completely unbroken. This beautiful harmony in God's good creation. The Garden of Eden. As soon as they eat from that tree. They are then isolated. But the isolation does not stop there. That ultimately they are isolated from Eden as well. They're kicked out of this garden that they've been, they've been commissioned to take care of. They've been, they've been brought into this world to, 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 take, to, to order and manage and steward God's good creation. And as soon as the, the sin enters the picture, they're isolated from their creator. They're isolated from Eden. And they are also isolated from the tree of life. Because we're introduced to the two trees in verse 8. 
But by the end of chapter 3, not only are they kicked out of Eden, but they are no longer given the right to eat from this tree. So a command that was given to not eat from this tree is broken and that command shifts and says you can now no longer participate or eat from the tree of life. Devastating circumstances. Devastating consequences for this sin. So the result is isolation and the result is a disease in sin. Are you all encouraged yet? (laughs) Yeah. So what I want to say to you primarily from this tree is not only the nature of sin that we've talked about, but that which is most destructive is often that which is most attractive. And if we could learn that, that it's only attractive in the short term, if we can really grab a hold of that, then I believe that we will experience more and more victory in our lives as we do our best to follow Christ. So what about the tree of life? Right? We need some encouragement up in here, huh? So what about this tree? And, and, and how, do we, how are we to compare? For, now for this tree, we're going to turn to Revelation. So go all the way to the back. Revelation chapter 22. I want to read just three verses. And then we're going to go back and we're going to pick up a little bit from Genesis and Revelation as we, end this, as we kind of bring the message to a close. But, but Revelation... Chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Because the, the idea here is how does this tree then, because we're introduced to both trees in Genesis, this one takes the main stage in the Genesis narrative, which is about sin entering the world. But in Genesis 22, this one takes main stage. And this, even though it's a couple verses long, becomes one of the most central images in Revelation. Revelation is full of all kinds of imagery, but central to that in Revelation chapter 22 is the tree of life. Because from this tree, springs life. Even though it's just two short verses, it becomes the central thing. And what we're given at this point is is when we're given this imagery of the tree of life in Revelation, we are at the point in the narrative in the Revelation that John, the writer, has been given a glimpse into God's new world. And so what he's describing beginning in chapter 21, ending at the very last verse of the Bible in in chapter 22, is what we are given is sort of this glimpse into God's new world. God's recreation, the renewal of all things, the redemption of all things. In other words, where the story started in Genesis 1, 2, 3, it was always headed to, to Revelation 22, 21 and 22. There, 21 and 22 are not somehow disconnected from the rest of the narrative. It's that the Genesis narrative has all the way been leading us back to Revelation 21 and 22. And so this is the imagery when he's describing God's good world, God's new world, God's new city. The imagery he gives us is of a tree. Isn't that interesting? Connections between the beginning and the end. Because what takes center stage in Genesis 3 is a tree. And what takes center stage in Revelation 22 is a tree. This time, the tree of life. So let's read it together. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, 
Now, I don't, I don't really know how to, to comprehend that, whether this, the roots of the tree are so deep that it extends and is growing on both sides of the river, or, or, or how to, to conceive that. But the scripture says that on both sides of the bank of the river stood the tree of life. And here are the details that we get. It, it's bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And then the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be any curse for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Just a couple of short verses, but the details that we're giving are absolutely the details that we're given are absolutely profound, and they are this. The fruit that it bears, it bears once a month. This tree of life standing on both sides of the banks of the river of life are bearing its fruit each and every month. Now, we got to understand a little bit of the historical context. In this ancient world, Roman, in this ancient world, Rome was sort of the ruler. They were the master, and they were an evil master. And what they would do is they structured their taxes in a way that would exploit the poor, making them poorer and poorer. And so in, the, in Rome, the rich were getting richer and richer, and the poor were getting poorer and poorer. And so there was sort of this growing gap between the rich and the poor. Does that sound familiar? Okay? And so, the, the, so they're, they're doing all this. The, the gap between the rich and the poor is getting bigger and bigger. And, and so what happens then is hunger and famine were absolutely common as the poor got poorer and poorer. Does that make sense? But the imagery we're given then is that in God's new world, where the tree of life stands, there is a tree that bears its fruit every single month. In other words, this tree represents the end of that gap, the end of hunger, the end of famine, the end of lack. What this tree symbolizes as it bears its fruit every month, standing right on the shore of the tree, uh, right on the shore of this beautiful, crystal clear river of life. This tree stands for abundance. In other words, it's this dramatic reversal of the effects of sin. Because if you and I try to be autonomous, if you and I are trying to be our own creator, our own God, and rule our lives, then we see ourselves as rather independent, don't we? And we see ourselves as, ra- as, and as we see ourselves as rather independent, we are going to go about the work of living only for ourselves. Which means what? If I'm rich, I'm going to get richer. In which by getting richer, there's only so much resource in the world, I'm going to get poor. There's others who are going to get poorer and poorer. So we're looking out only for ourselves, right? In this world of sin. And what this does is, and what that will lead to is sort of this unjust and, and, and sort of imbalanced distribution of goods in the world. And that's what we see happening in our world today. As sin is running more and more rampant, or as we've lived in sin now since the creation of the world, what we see is sort of this, this, un, this disjust, injustice, disjustice. You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm awesome at English, just ask. All right, so we, we see this happening. And what this is, that's the reversal of that. It reverses the problem that sin creates. For inequality and unfair distribution of food food and goods, because we're autonomous and independent and need to look out only for ourselves, now this ends the lack and gives abundance for everyone. Imagine how encouraging that is 
to the original readers of Revelation, living under the evil rule of the empire known as Rome, as they themselves become poorer and poorer, they are given a picture of God's abundance in God's new creation. I wonder if that could encourage any of us today. Now, the second imagery we're given is that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, the word here for healing is, um, let me look at my notes just so I get it right, is therapia, where we get our word therapy or healing. And so what this essentially means is that the leaves of this tree are medicine with healing properties. And it's not just sort of this physical healing, although it is that. It's this much deeper healing, this emotional healing, this spiritual healing, this physical healing. Where this tree is absolutely for the healing of all the nations. Where this other tree brought disease and sin, this tree Brings healing. Do you see that this tree reverses the effects of this tree? Do you see that in every real way? And so the imagery is that every the, the imagery is one of having every single wound healed. I would ask you today, what are the wounds that you carry? What are the wounds that you carry? They may be emotional wounds. They may be literal, physical wounds where you live in pain each and every day. Whatever the nature of your wound, the promise of God's good world and the tree of life is that all of those wounds would be healed by the leaves of this tree. It's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful picture. But this imagery is not original to Revelation. We actually find this imagery of the tree of life and the leaves of healing in in Ezekiel in the Old Testament where the prophet Ezekiel is, is, is prophesying over Israel and saying that Israel itself and herself will be healed. And so it says this, Ezekiel 47 Uh, Verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river and their leaves will not wither, nor nor will their fruit fail. But every month they will bear their fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them and their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Their fruit for food and their leaves for healing. Now in Ezekiel, the prophet Uh, Ezekiel is prophesying over Israel specifically. And he's saying that Israel herself will be healed and will will experience this redemption. And what John does in Revelation is he busts that wide open and says, now the leaves of this tree and the fruit of this tree are for the entire world, for the healing of the nations. When we see nations against warring against one another for all of these conflicts in the world, this is a corporate kind of healing. It is absolutely for the nations. There is nothing that will go wounded in God's new world. So it's this this sort of corporate nature, but it's also this this very personal thing where if you have wounds, if you have these these hurts and these challenges, that the leaves of this tree will also heal you. For where the other tree brought isolation, this tree brings welcome and promises healing. And so in in many ways, this tree represents the reversal 
of all that this tree has brought into our world. And you and I, we live between the trees. We live between the trees. Having, experiencing ourselves the very effects of this tree, and yet hoping and longing for the results of this tree. You and I live between the trees. Now there's a lot of talk about the tree of life that doesn't give us details about the tree itself, but talks about us being kept from the tree of life. I want to just quickly give you some of these scriptures. Genesis 3.22, Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, so he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and eat from the tree of life. That's the result of eating from this tree. Then comes the command that you can no longer eat from this tree. Genesis 3.24, After he drove them out, that is after God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, he placed on the east side of the garden a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so this tree, we seem to be cut off from this tree. Where, where we have to, we've now lost our right to eat from the goodness of God's new creation. In Revelation 2, 22, verse 14, he says, Blessed are those now who wash their robes, that they may gain the right to the tree of life. And if we're gaining a right to the tree of life, the implicit message is that somehow we have lost it. And so a lot of the details, most of the details that we get regarding the tree of life, is that we've been cut off from it. That we've lost our right and that somehow we have to regain a right to eat from the tree of life. Revelation twenty two nineteen. Those who take away from this prophecy and will lose their share in the tree of life and the, and the holy city. There's a lot of talk about being kept from the tree of life or regaining our right to this tree. The question is... Is that for you and I, or is that just for Adam and Eve? Do we live in the reality of being cut off from God's good creation? That's the question we have to ask. Yes, we live in between the trees, but do we get to even have a small taste of the tree of life right here and right now? Or must we simply live not really between the trees, but beside this one? That's the question that we have to answer. And I believe we get a hint from it also in Revelation. Revelation, back in chapter 2, I believe. Verse 7, it says this. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To those who are victorious, they will then gain the right to eat from the tree of life that is in the garden of God. What does it mean to be victorious? And particularly, what does it mean to be victorious in Revelation? Well, we learn from Revelation chapter 12 that being victorious is identifying ourselves with the shed blood of the Lamb of God. That is, Jesus Christ. That being victorious in Revelation is not about having a bigger gun with more bullets and a Humvee but rather saying and identifying ourselves with the victory of God that has already been won with Christ on the cross and the resurrection. In other words, 
along the path from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to the tree of life, there is also another tree that stands in the middle and leads the way. The tree of Calvary where Christ died. That when we identify ourselves with the shed blood of the Lamb of God, we find our way still between the trees, but given the right to taste the good fruit of God's new creation. We give ourselves the right to experience the healing of God from the leaves of this tree. So as we live between the trees, may you not forget the tree that is in the middle.